As we are getting ready to leave for the court on the third day of the trial, we receive an email from DS Luke Gallagher. The judge will allow evidence from the conspiracy to pervert the course of justice to be heard in the rape trial. This is progress, both a major victory and a huge relief. But when we arrive at the courtroom, our spirits soon flag. It is another excoriating day. For a start, there is a delay in getting going due to the judge having to sentence on another case. The defence barrister is sitting in the waiting area outside the courtroom and I don't want to be near her. Phil and Caroline go to the dismal cafe, but I can't be bothered to walk down the three flights of stairs, so I hang around on the landing, brooding on everything. When terrible things like rape happen, everyone rushes to comfort the victim, to say to her, It's not on you, you are not to blame. But once you are in court, everything is on you. It is absolutely on you. B is taking the blame for all of it for drinking, for not remembering what happened, for not fighting back, for ever having taken drugs, for what she said or didn't say, for who she called, why and when. Everything potentially blameworthy B has ever done is being paraded out as evidence of the fact that she's lying. Anything and everything is being laid at B's door so that she bears the responsibility rather than the animal who attacked her. When we finally get into the courtroom again, it hums with white noise, the dread silence of expectation. Before the jury is called in, the legal arguments around the conspiracy evidence are heard. The defence barrister argues that hearing about the conspiracy will make the jury aware that Mr Y has been remanded in custody since his arrest and that this will prejudice them against him. To me, this seems like the least of his worries – Surely the jury is more likely to be prejudiced against someone who tried to pervert the course of justice. She then goes on to imply that, although all prison phones have a notice beside them informing users that calls are recorded, poor little Mr Y might not have known that, so it was unfair to use the calls he made to his girlfriend, Miss X, against him. Which again seems to totally ignore the point that he tried to stop someone, i.e. B., from taking action about a dreadful wrong he had done. Above all else, the defence says the prosecution only wants the conspiracy to be included because their case is weak regarding consent and they want to turn the jury against the defendant. Is this true? I whisper to Caroline. She reassures me. Of course she'll say that. What else can she say? It doesn't mean anything. But all I can think is that the jury is allowed, nay invited, to be prejudiced in every possible way against B, and no one is permitted to object to that. From the innocent lie she told about which friend she was meeting, to the detentions for no homework or the wrong uniform on her school record, the jury can be told it all. But the judge has to rule on whether a jury can be told anything about the defendant, except that which the defence wants them to hear. Double standards? Just a bit. It's insane. Men's rules for a man's world. It stinks. Nevertheless, the judge has ruled that the conspiracy can be included, and she now proceeds to present her reasoning, citing reams of relevant law, subsection this, clause that, as the background and justification for her decision. The stunning fact that is revealed to us as the judge goes through it all is that, on that one day in September when Miss X came looking for B, Mr. Y called Miss X 16 times and that those 16 calls generated 57 pages of phone transcripts. From all of this material, the judge decrees that just 10 comments can be presented to the jury. She precludes any in which Mr. Y is coercing Miss X. 
She doesn't go into the details of this coercion, but it all fits. From the moment I saw and heard our neighbour's CCTV footage, I was sure Miss X was talking to Mr Y as she walked away after Iris had given her the brush off. It was also obvious that he was at the very least questioning her robustly about what had happened, how she knew the person she was following was not B, why she didn't try harder. Obvious because Miss X was crying and sounding defensive and very upset. That one comment, I didn't see her eyes, as if justifying herself, was enough to give away a world of information. Now I'm finding out that I was absolutely right, and the police, who utterly refused to properly investigate this crime, were absolutely wrong. Later, we will find out that the governor of the prison where Mr Y was held whilst on remand, and from the cell of which he made the calls to Miss X, only allowed the police access to the phone records from that one day in September. I am flabbergasted by this, that a prison governor can block the police from making their rightful inquiries into a serious crime, and can decree what evidence he will or will not hand over. How is he able to do this? Apparently the governor cited the reaction of other prisoners, that he might face unrest or insurrection if inmates believed their private conversations were being listened to, even though the aforementioned signs alert them to this possibility. This is simply gobsmacking. They are criminals, in prison for wrongdoing, or at the very least suspected wrongdoing. Does that not include and entail losing some rights of privacy? Like so much else that has happened over the last eight months, I can't believe it. Yet again, I reiterate to myself that we all think we know how bad it is, but we don't. We don't have the first idea.